Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak, and I'm here with Albert Garcia Romeo. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very good, and I'm glad to have you here. I'm going to read a quick bit of your bio and then ask you maybe if you can give some more background. Uh, Sounds good. And then after that, I'll describe how I, how I came to you and how I found you and why I'm so, I've been so looking forward to this conversation. So you are a PhD and assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. You examine the effects of psychedelics in humans with a focus on psilocybin as an aid in the treatment of addiction. And long-time listeners know I look at addiction a lot. And uh, okay, so you, back to your bio. Your current research includes clinical applications of psychedelics, real-world drug use patterns, diversity in science, and the role of spirituality in mental health. You're founding member of the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. And this feels to me a mix of both super traditional, uh, long-time human stuff, and also very cutting edge because it, it was from the Johns Hopkins page. I think your this program began in 2000, so it's after a long hiatus. And I wonder if you could share how you, maybe more of what you do, how you came to this, and more about the program. Because I think most people don't know about it. Maybe they've heard a little bit about it, but not really. Sure, absolutely. So um, a few questions wrapped up in there, but I'll just start and talk about the psychedelic research first, and then I can kind of talk about how I got linked into that, because uh, it actually started back in around 1999, 2000. I was still in high school at the time, so uh, I was not involved at the point uh, when they were initiating this work. Uh, but as you mentioned, you know, there had been um, actually quite a lot of research with psychedelics and uh, medical sciences back in the 1950s and 60s, a lot of that focusing on LSD. Um, and then during the, uh, you know, the countercultural period in the 1960s, there's a lot of uh, adoption of the psychedelics among the counterculture, which also led to a lot of cultural backlash, including the uh, beginning of the war on drugs. And uh, during the Nixon administration, there's a Controlled Substances Act, which made cannabis and all the psychedelics illegal. Um, and then the work that was being done with uh, psychedelics scientifically really kind of uh, slowed down significantly. And it wasn't until the mid-90s, early 2000s that that started again, uh, when researchers like Roland Griffiths, uh, who's here at Hopkins, one of my mentors, um, other folks who had been doing this work way back in the 60s, like Bill Richards, they all started to work together to try to build new programs of research a lot of which focus on psilocybin specifically, which is one of these psychedelics that's found um, in nature. This comes from a lot of different kinds of mushrooms. Um, but yeah, in 2000 or so, they started um, one of the first modern studies of uh, psilocybin and uh, what we call psychedelic naive people, people who had not previously experienced one of these psychedelic drugs, so they didn't really know what to expect. Uh, and it was a, a real kind of clean, simple design where people either got um, a high dose of psilocybin with a little bit of psychological support, or they got a, a active placebo, which was in that case methylphenidate. So another type of drug, but um, there's all sorts of problems doing real placebo-controlled research with psychedelics, mainly because people will notice the drug effects, you know, within usually about an hour. And so that study was done using this active placebo design so that people would feel something and since they hadn't had any prior experience, they may not be able to gauge what that was. Um, but nevertheless, that early research really kind of set the stage for a lot of the contemporary work with psilocybin and other psychedelics. Really, the main thing that it showed was that, um, you know, high-dose psilocybin, even just one session, 
could have uh, profound and lasting effects on people, including increasing their well-being and their sense of life satisfaction. I mean, that it was safe to administer these drugs in a laboratory setting uh, without necessarily causing anybody any, you know, psychological damage or any physical harm. And that has really become a sort of linchpin of um, further research that happened in the beginning of the 2000s um, that started to look more closely at the pharmacological mechanisms, how these drugs work, how they work in the brain and the body, and then also some of the psychological mechanisms, um, which later down the line really started to shift back a focus towards this clinical research area, meaning specifically trying to use them as treatments for people with various different types of health conditions. Um, but a lot of that work is focused on mood disorders like major depression, uh, substance use disorders, which we typically call addictions colloquially, um, and also uh, in treating uh, existential distress in patients with terminal illness. And so that's been kind of the focus of the work um, since the beginning of the 2010s, roughly. Uh, and that was when I was just finishing my graduate school uh, experience. I was studying spirituality and psychology out in Palo Alto, California at the time. And um, I ended up meeting one of the researchers from Hopkins at a conference. And it was just a really serendipitous, uh, you know, uh, encounter because it ended up leading me here to come work with them. Um, and mainly, I was really interested in how spiritual experiences, transcendent or peak experiences, you know, people call them lots of different names, but you know, how those could uh, have an impact on what mental health. And for some people, they can really be helpful and, um, you know, make them feel uh, resilient against some of the difficulties that we can face in life. Um, for other people, it can set them off on a course of, you know, continued problems with mental health, including things like psychosis. So that was really fascinating to me. And that overlapped nicely with what they were doing here at the lab at the time, which was trying to occasion or elicit these types of experiences using high-dose psychedelics uh, in the context of uh, some sort of mental health treatment, um, for instance, to help people quit smoking cigarettes. And so that was when I uh, arrived here in 2012, and I started getting plugged into some of that research specifically. Did you know that you were going to be at the... Am I right to say this is cutting-edge science? I mean, on the one hand, it, it is traditional in that, I mean, use of psychedelics goes back tens of thousands of years. And it's certainly thousands of years, and yet no one was doing it for a while, Nixon and so forth. Do you feel like you're at the cutting edge? Did you realize you would be there? Am I right in characterizing it that way? Um, so, yeah, a lot of people talk about this as being sort of cutting edge or leading edge science. Um, I mean, I think, unfortunately, a lot of that is simply due to taboo and stigma because a lot of this work could have been happening since the 70s had there not been such a strong social backlash against these substances. But um, for whatever reason, you know, historically and socially, um, this was kind of locked away for, for some time. And um, it wasn't until more recently that people were feeling confident to approach it again from a scientific standpoint. And now it is absolutely, you know, one of these new areas. And, you know, FDA has even, you know, considered these types of treatments breakthrough therapies, as they call them, um, meaning that they're trying to facilitate more research because they seem so promising. So, yeah, I think it is, you know, um, accurately described as cutting edge in many ways. Um, but you're right. This is something that is not new. You know, the psilocybin obviously predates human history um, and, you know, human use of these types of different types of psychedelics goes back thousands of years at least. And so it's it's a little bit of a what's old is new again situation. Mm -hmm. now, a few years ago, 2018, I was in California and 
uh, cannabis was legal there, but not here. And I think for recreational use. And I was staying with a friend and someone who lived there, she was a grandmother and she was like, I had to go to a store and she was like, oh, I'm, I'm running some errands. And one of the errands was to stop by and buy some cannabis. And I'm like, I'm with this grandmother. And at the time I felt like this is really crazy. Like a grandmother just walking into a, a dispensary and buying cannabis like she'd buy uh, you know, a bottle of wine and asking like, what's this one like and what's that one like? And all the people in California are like, Josh, you got to get over this. It's not weird. It's not unusual. It's like you buying alcohol. The prohibition ended a while ago. And it, you know, alcohol prohibition ended a while ago. You don't think weird things about buying alcohol. So, but when I talk about psychedelics, I still feel like there's some, I don't think taboo is the right word, but I still feel like it's something. But is, it, is that something I have to just get over? Are you, for you, is it, is it talking about that? Is it talking about like aspirin or uh, like, am I behind the times or overly conservative? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who come at this from a very conservative or even more skeptical standpoint. And, you know, rightly so. A lot of the way that we perceive these different drugs and these different substances that are out there is, uh, you know, through a lens, a cultural lens. And so if you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, for instance, you know, you might have gone through some of these programs at school like DARE, which tried to teach people about drugs and, you know, really... Uh, in many ways, the focus at the time was to kind of vilify drug use and say, you know, all these drugs are bad. You shouldn't use them and they're dangerous. Um, and of course, there are drugs that are more or less dangerous. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of whether or not they're safe or whether or not they're useful, um, that's a whole different story. And so if you look at something like tobacco, for instance, which is a drug that kills the most people in the world every year, is something that you can go around the corner store and buy, you know, without any sort of uh, reservations at all. And, you know, obviously people know it's not good for them, but it's readily available. And if you see a person smoking a cigarette on the street, you know, you probably wouldn't think too much about it. But yeah, with these types of psychedelics and with cannabis as well, you know, there was a decades long, I hate to say propaganda machine, but there was definitely some information that was being put out to the public, to the media, and even to educated people like uh, medical you know, practitioners that these were, purely risky substances of abuse. And so for many people who kind of think about them any differently is is a little odd, if you, you might say. So I I guess I've, I'm, I'm going to get used to it being more and more culturally accepted, more normal to talk about. There's also, in, in the research that I see at, at Johns Hopkins and that I've heard of, there seems to be broadly in, let's say in, in positive psychology, there's this big split, not split, but like discovery that there's, you know, fixing problems and helping people get better. I, I, I'm sorry, not just fixing a problem, but just ha helping people who don't have a problem enjoy life more. Mm -hmm. And it feels like there's something like that here. When you talk about consciousness, that doesn't, when you feel like, when you talk about uh, helping with addiction or trauma, that feels different than um, exploring consciousness or um, becoming more resilient for future things. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's a really nice uh, way of kind of parsing apart some of this research. Some of it is what we would call more clinically oriented work. And so uh, klinos actually comes from the Greek root for bed. So bedridden people, sick people, people who are dealing with a health condition, major depression, for instance, or, you know, some sort of a drug or alcohol problem. You know, those would be these uh, specific situations where you have somebody showing up with an issue that they're trying to deal with and potentially providing some sort of treatment that might help them to manage that, you know, those issues. Um, now, that's just one 
area that's being focused on right now with these psychedelics. You know, another area that you're alluding to now is sort of uh, what my friend Bob Jesse calls the, the for the betterment of well people. So if you're not showing up to our door with any sort of problems per se, but you may want to, as you said, increase your resilience, um, you know, uh, increase your connection to other people or to nature or explore your spirituality. Those might be ways that you could do that using psychedelics without necessarily trying to treat a problem. And so that's, you know, its own sort of beast in many ways. Uh, and we found, you know, with lots of the research that's happened at Hopkins and elsewhere, that these psychedelics do seem to have a lot of uh, powerful potential in that area as well for people who don't necessarily have a problem when the, to begin with. Um, and then, I mean, a clinical problem that is. And then, you know, the um, other area, I think it kind of overlaps a lot of this is, um, you know, starting to answer more questions about the brain, the mind, consciousness, um, how all these pieces fit together. And I think it's because of all the new tools that we have now for, for instance, using brain imaging technologies and other types of modern scientific um, methods. We're able to um, kind of zero in more closely on what's happening when people get these drugs and when uh, and basically use the drugs as tools or probes to, to help us um, have a better understanding of a lot of these basic processes, cognitive processes, thinking, emotion, um, you know, and, and the pieces that sort of make up consciousness, if you will. So, yeah, there's a lot to look at here. And, and so that's why there is, I think, so much excitement now. Yeah, I feel like you. It probably start. I would guess the early FDA grants and approvals were probably for fixing, or uh, fixing is probably not not the right word, but healing people with with problems. Mm -hmm. And that's just like uh, pulling the thread on the sweater, and there's like a whole lot more that came with it. Yeah, definitely. And you know, a lot of the early work focused on both the sort of neurochemistry and and you know, the discovery of LSD was actually closely linked to the discovery of serotonin, which was one of the first neurotransmitter systems that was. Um, really uh, described and characterized in, in neuroscience back in the 1950s. And so as a scientific tool, you know, these drugs have a lot of potential as well. But yes, therapeutically or for healing purposes, there seems to be something there, which we're focusing a lot on, you know, with the current research. And then there's all this other stuff that can kind of tap into, you know, self-actualization, human potential, um, you know, positive psychology, those types of things that you mentioned. All right, thanks for all this background, and I want to share what brought what led me to seek you out. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about it. There's four things that overlapped a lot. One was that regular listeners know that I ask a lot of my guests what the environment means to them, and I get a lot of answers. And the it's really my favorite part of the podcast because no two answers are the same. Occasionally, I get someone who doesn't really have that much of a connection, but that's rare. Much more these. They share experiences. The last person I spoke to, this is, so today's Monday, on Friday, there was a couple of guests and one guy talked about his first experience among the redwoods in California, his first time seeing a whale and the whale just swimming next to the boat and he could touch it and, and it was just there for a long time. And his description of it was, I mean, he brought me to these places and it was just profound. And when I hear, I guess I first heard Roland talking about how People describe their experiences on, I think it was psilocybin. It's often among the top five experiences of their lives on par with the birth of their first child. And then when he would talk about the experiences, sometimes there's visuals and things, but the, the, the depth of it feels like uh, what I hear when, talking about, when people talk about nature or their experiences in nature. Then I'm also 
unplugging my apartment, unplugging my fridge, uh, doing all these, you know, avoiding packaged food. And I'm far from an indigenous culture, far from it. I'm far from knowing what it's like living in nature on a long term, but I'm moving in that direction. And I've had several guests who have lived among the San, the Hadza, the, the Tsumane, the various indigenous cultures who, I don't know any better way of putting it than they live in nature much more than we do. And we live very disconnected from nature. And I often say that I think up until maybe 100 years ago, virtually everyone alive could, with a brief walk, be among in solitude in the trees or along the beach, no helicopters flying nearby, no honking. And I think that the experiences that I hear people describe was probably available to everyone in some way, but I'm, I'm guessing. I don't really know. But the more that I learn about indigenous cultures, the more I feel like they do have such experiences as a normal part of life and their disconnect from or their disconnect from nature is much less, their connection is much greater. And I think it leads to big cultural differences. Then I meditate. I've been meditating for 15 years, maybe a bit more. And that's a lot of exploring consciousness and how my mind works and occasionally a profound experience but definitely very meaningful experiences regularly. And I, th I think there's a lot of overlap between psychedelic work and meditation work. And finally, long-time listeners know of my experience. I haven't talked much about it and it's, and it's profound effect on me, but a fair amount of psychedelic experience, especially if you consider MDMA psychedelic. Uh, and that was also something like 20 years ago, mostly. And mostly at the time, I thought of it as a fun thing because I was going out clubbing. But there were some experiences in there. It wasn't all just that. And looking back, I realized some of the changes. Like when I hear people talk about the changes that last a long, long time, I'm like, yeah, that happened to me. Mm -hmm. And there are some things that, like when I look at addiction, it feels like I'm post the people who've had their, the, the descriptions of people who've taken psychedelics and then look at the, psych, at the thing that they were addicted to and they just look at it differently. So these four things said, Talk to these guys at Johns Hopkins because it sounds like there's a lot of overlap. And I anticipated across, I, I fantasized or uh, hoped for a, a type of cross-pollination that maybe um, I'm applying all this nature connection to sustainability. And I wonder if all that nature connection could also apply to the things that psychedelics apply to. If this connection to nature supplies something that psychedelics also do. And likewise, maybe psychedelics could apply to sustainability. Maybe a lot of people are not connected to nature and could get connected in a much deeper way, possibly much faster. This is me speculating, but this is what brought me to you. And um, how does that sound to you? <laughs> yeah, well, a lot to unpack there, certainly. But yes, there is, I think, a lot of overlap. And, um, you know, a lot of the areas that you're talking about, you know, in terms of both shifting people's relationship to the natural world um, through psychedelics, but also some of the kind of parallel mental health benefits, and maybe you might even call them spiritual or well-being benefits of, of psychedelics and of being in the natural world, I think, you know, could be very uh, similar in, in character. And so, and, you know, obviously we talked about the, the sort of indigenous roots of psychedelic use, um, but even recreationally, you know, many people nowadays who use psychedelics use them in nature, um, not necessarily in these lab settings like we do um, for our research. And so, you know, we think that that has a lot to do with how uh, people 
kind of experience their, uh, you know, their dosing drug sessions and, and what that kind of uh, leaves them in terms of what they take away from it. Yeah. Is there anyone who takes a psychedelic and then goes to Times Square? I mean, the choice between some busy place where there's lots of stuff going on surrounded by concrete versus going to the beach or going to the forest, it feels like dis a big disconnect. Yeah, I mean, people seem to use these types of substances in lots of different ways. And so I wouldn't be surprised. And, you know, people talk about, for instance, microdosing these as something that helps them with their productivity or at work. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to hear, you know, people who do go to very busy places or urban areas. But, um, yeah, I think that there is a sort of natural inclination for many people to go somewhere um, that's got more access to nature, that might have more uh, opportunity for solitude as well when they're when they might be using psychedelics, you know, outside of a laboratory setting. And would I be? Yeah, I guess there would be people who do that. It just it would be jarring to me, given my experiences. Well, you talked about going clubbing, you know, and using MDMA. Well, that's pretty common. Um, you know, going yeah. to a busy, you know, crowded place and being around a lot of people. But you can also see that more almost as a um, you know, sort of a ritual where people are kind of getting together to, to socialize or to be together in a space. And so that's, you know, another potential use for these. Those clubs were particularly designed to be very comfortable for such an experience. So, uh, oh, maybe that, that yeah, that's, I guess, I, it didn't occur to me, but the set and setting, it was designed to have a positive experience there. Now, I'm, I'm sure I'm skipping many steps here, but of the pursuits of Johns Hopkins or various different researchers into psychedelics and applying them, I mean, certainly ceasing addiction seems like a fantastic one and the rates of, of success seem off the charts compared to other methods, at least from my casual uh, perusal of the, of the liter of the data. Is there, are there, I think you, you are doing something like this of, of applying it to sustainability or to people's approach to, nature i mean i'm I'm thinking in the long term we want voting patterns to change and uh cultural shifts, but even on the individual level, I feel like a lot of people i mean one of the big things that were that I find is that most motivation is extrinsic. People say Bangladesh is going to be underwater, and so you have to change your behavior. but I find that when it's intrinsically motivated, it's much more powerful. But most people, if you haven't really experienced nature or your experience in nature is to fly somewhere, get a curated view of it that's keeping you safe and, and, and implying that it's dangerous, and then you come back home and that was like this little brief visit to, might as well have been to an amusement park. I mean, maybe that's overstating it. That's not the same. When it's really intrinsically motivated, it's much more powerful. And I feel like this is, psychedelics are a route to that, could be. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, we are actually working on the paper right now looking at people who um, we gave psilocybin to as part of a research study for helping them quit smoking. But, you know, nature connectedness and people's attitude towards the natural world have been an area of interest of mine for about 20 years now since I actually went to go work for the U.S. Forest Service and was living outdoors in nature for a couple of months uh, out in Glacier National Park in Montana. And so that for me, was actually a stepping stone to where I'm at now in terms of my own research. Um, but I, you know, my experiences in nature were very profoundly transformative to me. And they also 
kind of uh, set in my mind this question of how can we bring this to people in a way that uh, allows them to feel connected or plugged in uh, to the natural world or to sort of the bigger um, powers and processes around us, which I think a lot of times we're, we're sort of uh, cut off from, as you mentioned. So, uh, so yeah, there's, there's definitely something uh, about both being in nature, which I think can elicit these uh, kind of awe evoking, you know, experiences and the psychedelic experience as well, that has a sort of uh, awesome quality to it. This sort of authoritative, uh, very uh, profoundly meaningful feeling that comes from the experience. And so there, there seems to be some overlap there that, um, you know, in terms of how can this be used for sustainability or, you know, to help uh, people think more about their own impact on the environment. Um, I think there's something there that's really important. Um, one of the things that's kind of rate limiting, though, for doing a lot of this work is that, um, for instance, if we do research with psilocybin, a lot of that is focused on um, the regulatory process that we need to navigate in order to do that. And even now, you know, some of the more or some of the less clinically oriented work, you know, becomes um, a little bit more difficult to, to conduct. Because if you talk about, oh, we want to use psychedelics to change people's minds, uh, specifically to change their attitudes or to make them think a certain way, you know, you can imagine how that might be very loaded. Um, you know, we want them to vote a certain way or we want them to think a certain way. Obviously, you know, what you're suggesting is something that's in line with what would be helpful for many people in terms of their, uh, you know, the, the natural world and the environment and how that and how, you know, we impact that. But. Um, at the same time, it's a lot easier to say, oh, well, we're trying to treat, you know, major depression or something. And the FDA would definitely look at that and say, okay, we understand that. Now, if you want to talk about sustainability, then the FDA is going to say, uh, we're not really sure. And that makes our work a little bit more difficult to approach from that angle, unfortunately. That makes a lot of sense. And I realized that I lumped in, uh, when I said, when I talked about voting patterns, I didn't mean I wanted to... Um, there's two separate things. I want people to be to have a deeper connection to nature and then freely do what they want with that. Separately, I have my political um, views and I don't want to guide people to vote a certain way in terms of connecting with nature. Yeah, so I would want to separate those. And what about research outside FDA? I mean, is... I mean, you can't... In the United States, if you want to give people these drugs... You're going to have to go through the FDA, basically, uh, um, and you know, mm -hmm. through an IRB, and um, and that's likely will you know change in some ways over the next decade or so because you know everything's been locked down very tightly since the 19, uh, early 1970s. But um, with the you know the closer that we get to these becoming FDA approved medications, I think the more uh, openness there will be to looking at them for other purposes like purposes of spiritual exploration, going to a retreat center. And indeed, many people go down to places like Central or South America or the Netherlands, you know, and they um, go to these uh, specialized retreat centers where they're able to have these curated experiences with psychedelics, oftentimes, you know, surrounded by or near nature. Um, and so I imagine that we'll see more of that type of use in the United States, um, even, you know, openness to that. Um, as we see more acceptance in terms of these as medical, you know, you know, medical treatments as well. Okay. I thought FDA was somehow 
like if you wanted to publish. Or, but it, so if cannabis is legal for recreational use in some states, I guess in principle you could research that without FDA approval because it's no, not nope. really. Yeah, they'll bring the hammer. So, um, I mean, you, there may be institutions where you could get around or maybe try to find loopholes, but, you know, here at Hopkins, even if we want to study CBD, which is, you know, something people put in their dog treats, or like you said, your grandma might go find some at the store, um, you know, in order for us to do it through the approved research channels, uh, we have to ask FDA for permission to do so. We have to explain what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it. And so, yeah, that that's... Um, quite burdensome and it makes it you know, <laughs> difficult to do our work, unfortunately. But, you know, I think that the idea is generally around safety, but um, I think ironically, um, you know, it ends up uh, making our science much slower because people are out there using things, all sorts of drugs and substances that are available. And then the people who are serious scientists who want to study them and understand them um, have to jump through a lot of hoops to do the same thing that the man on the street can go do, you know, quite easily. And so that, yeah, that makes it difficult to do a lot of interesting work in the field. And um, yeah, that's something that we come up against often. Now, just to get a, a feel for it, is it because I thought cannabis was pretty recreational. What if I wanted to do a study on effects of oranges and citrus fruits on one's connection to nature? Would that require FDA approval? I don't think you need to do something like that because um, you know, they would not consider that a drug. But if you're going to give somebody what would be considered a drug, um, under, you know, a research study uh, purview, then most of the time you're going to be required to have um, some sort of approval from a governing agency like the FDA. Even if I was okay. going to give you a medicine that was approved for, you know, one thing, but we're going to study it for something else, we have to get some sort of approval to do that. So, yeah, um, luckily that would be considered a food, the oranges, you know, but um, if you're extracting some chemical from there, that may have to also go through process of review to, to see, you know, how was it extracted, doing, how do we know it's safe and so forth. Okay. And is there some parallel or am I looking for too much of a pattern here that in other cultures, there are shamans and, and people who also have some sort of regulatory process of, of like that. I, th I think it, here I'm way out of my league, but I think in a lot of places where uh, traditional cultures that would use psychedelics, it wasn't like you would anyone would do it any time whenever they felt like it. It was under controlled situations with experts. Is that, is that right? I mean, I guess there's, there's probably such a, a wide variety of, of different cultures and different types of use that it would be hard to comment generally, you know, across the board. But yeah, I mean, oftentimes there are these sort of social structures that get built up around, you know, using psychedelics, whether that be ayahuasca or psilocybin mushrooms or peyote uh, and, you know, in those cases, yeah, the, the sort of social structure would include, uh, you know, a way that people use this uh, safely, um, you know, a kind of a cultural understanding of the substance and what its purpose is. Um, and yes, often there would be a shaman or somebody who would be considered the sort of the expert, uh, you know, in terms of guiding this, this situation. I feel like we might be recreating something that for our culture that our culture has been missing for some time perhaps? Well, you know, I think a lot of underground use, you know, as you talked about earlier, you know, the use of uh, psychedelics in rave settings or, you know, electronic dance music scene or, um, you know, at festivals or, you know, including music festivals going back to 
concerts like Woodstock and so forth, um, you know, those are also sort of more grassroots, you might consider uh, social settings that include their own sort of expertise and considerations around set and setting for psychedelic use. And then what you see now is this sort of building up of this more medical um, approach, which is what we're working on here. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to consider all of these different approaches and both how indigenous cultures use these substances, how we might use them medically, um, and also how people use them. You know, we say recreationally in a way that sounds kind of derogatory, but I think, uh, you know, recreational is just as necessary as, you know, medical. And so it's something that is very normal and, and natural. And so there's probably some good that comes along with this recreational use as well. If I'm not reading in too much of, I hear in your language, you are speaking in the language of a, of a university researcher, mm -hmm. but I also detect a, a passion of this is like, um, you, there's this, I think you use the word straight jacket of the FDA and probably for a great re for reasons we all agree with. And you're almost chomping at the bit of like, oh, I can't wait to find out what's next and to figure out how to apply this in new ways. Keeping in mind there are risks and it's not just like a plaything. Well, well, absolutely. There's just so much for us to learn and study in this domain. So it is is really exciting. And, you know, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head that there are cultural implications for this, uh, for these substances and, you know, how we use them that could uh, create widespread shifts in the way that people think and the way that they behave. And, you know, ideally that could be uh, tailored to create a, a greater sense of both community with each other so that there would be less fighting warfare and, and some of that bad stuff. And then also uh, more community within the natural world, you know, including uh, probably better stewardship of uh, natural resources, uh, you know, perhaps changing our, our patterns of how we eat and what we eat and um, how we pollute and what we produce and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, ultimately these are the big picture types of uh, changes that, that need to happen if we are to survive as a species. And so I think there's something about the psychedelic experience that could bring us to a place that's more pro-social, you know, in terms of uh, behaving more so in the interests of our fellow humans, but also more ecologically oriented so that we're also um, acting in the best interests of the world around us. And I agree with you that the extrinsic motivating factors aren't necessarily the, the right path there because... Uh, coming from the outside, it always feels like an imposition. But when it's coming from the inside, you know, where you feel deeply connected to the natural world or, um, you know, you feel like you're a part of nature, then it makes sense for you to do things that would behoove all of nature because it would also be good for us. And so, you know, how do we um, foster that understanding in people? I think, you know, having people spend more time in nature obviously is one way, um, but also, you know, I think psychedelics could be a really powerful tool for that as well, for accelerating that kind of mindset. Yeah, I feel like um, with meditation, there's a, there's a parallel. You can meditate for a long, 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 long time and make certain progress. And psychedelics, you'll get it fast. I mean, it might not be the same, but there seems to be like a, a kickstart. Yes, absolutely. There can, you know, I think uh, psychedelics can quickly catalyze shifts in perspective, changes in the way that the mind sort of perceives things or ourselves or our place in the world um, that, you know, is very slow going most of the time when you're uh, 
uh, undergoing something like a meditation practice. Uh, so the drugs can take you right there pretty quickly, but oftentimes it's almost like showing you that, yes, there is this different way of thinking and looking at the world, but in order to really fully get there, you may have to come back and do a lot of that, uh, you know, more difficult work, you know, whether that be meditation, psychotherapy, um, you know, just reflecting on oneself and, you know, what it is that that experience meant to them. So, you know, we talk about that as the integration uh, process. So it's not just about having this big flashy experience that feels good or that, you know, seems to connect the dots. But I think afterwards it's following that vision and trying to uh, make it something that's enduring in some way. So I'm going to uh, segue over to the Spodic method. And so you're a researcher, so you'll probably do this on a meta level, like you'll participate and also kind of think of like what's going on, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, is the environment, so I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask, is the environment something that matters to you enough that you would act on it or have acted on it in some way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's something that for a long time has uh, been really important to me, but I don't think I had a good framework for that until I was able to spend extended periods in nature. Um, but growing up, I grew up in Miami in South Florida, and you know, I always saw the beach as a sort of place where I could go to get away from the chaos of, you know, the land dwelling people and all the stuff that was going on there. Um, Cause it was always very busy and, you know, and nothing wrong with that, but there was something nice about going to the ocean and it was something that was so vast. And uh, to me, you know, it was very calming. And so I knew since I was young that going near the water, being near the water was really restorative for me uh, in a way. Um, but yeah, I think it was probably, when I was around 21 or 22 years old, when uh, some friends and I decided to make a sojourn out to um, Montana and work for the Forest Service over the course of the summer during our undergraduate period. And, uh, you know, that was really powerfully transformative for me. And I would say that really gave me a lot more to think about and chew on in terms of, you know, nature and what that meant to me and um, how powerful I felt that could be to I don't know, just to experience that, you know, to be in it viscerally um, in a way that was something that changed uh, a lot of how I thought about myself. And, and actually, again, you know, really kind of set me off in the course of the research that I'm doing now. I'm hearing a parallel, despite differences in, in your stage in life and the situation at beach is very different than a forest, but still something similar. I, I wonder if you could either the beach or the forest, could you, what was the sensory experience? What, like, bring us there. Like, what's around, what do you smell and taste and, and hear and touch and smell? You know, I think really for me, the shift that I noticed and that, you know, I was later, you know, reading Abraham Maslow and he was talking about these peak experiences um, and they seemed very uh, similar to what I was experiencing when I was in the woods or when I was in at the beach, regardless. And it was really uh, less of a focus on myself and what's going on in my mind and my to-do list and all the things that, I, that I'm worried about and the future or all the things that I said that I felt bad about. Um, and really, all of a sudden, that sort of begins to melt away. And, um, you know, you start to be in tune with this larger order, this this major, you know, this bigger sort of uh, system, which, you know, that might be the ocean, the stars, the mountain, the trees, all the animals that might be, you know, around there. 
Um, once you start to think about things in terms of those larger systems, then all the little things that kind of eat away at us, at least in my mind, um, really started to fall away. And, and at least I was able to put them in perspective is much smaller and, and less critical than I kind of, uh, you know, was want to think about them as. And then, you know, once you start seeing this bigger order and, and feeling like you're a part of that, then for me, you know, I was often in this sort of emotional state as well of this, I think, awe might be a good way of putting it, you know, this feeling of awe, this feeling of, wow, look at all of this and how big it is and how eternal, you know, in some ways, how eternal, eternity and infinity and, you know, these really big types of concepts kind of intersect with our small selves that, that are here just for a finite amount of time. And then when you have that, that feeling of being at that intersection with these really just enormous types of experiences, then again, I think it puts humanity and, and you know, our day-to-day -day lives in a, a certain type of perspective that's really helpful. And I think um, for me, that was the types of experiences that I had that made me want to study further you know, how do we elicit these experiences to help people with their mental health? And um, eventually, as you said, you know, to help them act in ways that might be more in line with their own benefit and the benefit of the natural world. Thank you for sharing. And I want to go back a step also. I felt like you skipped a step of um, when you go to the beach or you go there, at first you're not in that state. And you're... What... Can you, I mean, I, I think it was, it would be like seeing the ocean, seeing the waves or seeing, maybe hearing birdsong or I'm not sure what, can you, like, what were the middle steps? What prompted the shift from, if you're not feeling like that on a day-to-day -day basis, and then you are feeling that way, do you remember what, what you saw or heard or smelled or that, that led to that, if that's what caused it? Sure. Well, I mean, I think at the, at the beach in specific, you know, there's a feel of the sand beneath you. There's a sound of the ocean. It's always kind of coming, coming, and going. The sound of the water. Um, sometimes there are birds, you know. But uh, I think for me, it's really the the feel of you know the sand beneath you, the sound of the ocean, and then always the sort of vast expanse of the sky above you. And usually, we would go out there at night when we were kids. You know, we didn't have anywhere else to go, um, and that was that was it. You were just looking at the stars seeing the ocean, which again, was so big and, and, you know, the smell of that, uh, you know, and the feeling of the ground beneath you. And there, there, that seemed like this intersection of, you know, our little, my little self with the rest of the universe in a way that was very uh, powerful. Yeah. You're, you bring me there and you're reminding me of, of a thought that I often have at the beach, which is the, the waves have been coming and going long before I was around, long before humans were around. They'll be going long afterward. There's planets out there where there's water or some liquid lapping up on some beach there too. And some there may be something there with a the consciousness to observe it or not. I normally I don't normally think that, but you you made you you conjure that up in me. Yeah. How about in the forest? Uh, the other times that was a little different. You know, that was, I think, outside of my comfort zone. And it was um, scarier, I would say, in many ways. And you have to think of it in terms of, you know, I was this kid that grew up in Miami, I was always in, you know, in the city. And then I was in New Orleans, when I was an undergraduate. So always in, you know, urban areas, lots of people, and obviously, that poses its own risks. But 
um, when we were out in the woods, you know, oftentimes we'd be hours away from anything that would be considered civilization. And uh, it was humbling uh, to be out there and to feel like you're at the mercy of uh, natural forces. I mean, being in the woods, in the mountains, there was always a possibility you could fall off the side of a mountain and, you know, just that would be the end of it for you. You know, there's, um, you know, the possibility, thankfully, we're well outfitted by the Forest Service. And so, you know, we never had this problem. But if you're out there and you didn't have any food or, you know, weren't able to um, procure shelter when, the, you know, when the weather was bad, that would also end you. And so there is something about that that, um, I don't know, it felt like when you're there and you see the how big the mountains are and you see animals like bears, you know, that are out there and they're, you know, you realize very quickly that you're no longer um, the boss in that situation. And so um, for me, that was, I think, just really powerful. But again, it was also being away from all of this stuff, you know, that the, that was normal for us, you know, being around, like you said, the traffic, the sounds of cars, the, you know, sounds of sirens, um, you know, all the people. And, um, you know, so being somewhere out there like that, there is the, the peacefulness of it. Um, but at the same time, I think there's always underlying this, this sense of, wow, you know, this place is, is wild. And so, you know, you have to respect that in a way. It's funny because you said you could fall off a cliff, not quite a cliff, but down the side of a mountain, which suddenly changed the scene for me. I didn't realize you could fall off. And I'm kind of curious of that scene. Like, were you walking along the edge of a cliff or not cliff? Or were you, or does it sometimes happen where you're walking forward and you don't notice that like the two steps ahead might be a big drop off? Well, often we would be, you know, walking along the edge of a cliff and our jobs would be, you know, after the the winter season to come back and make sure those trails were clear for hikers and people to come through. But I mean, I have a very specific recollection of, you know, being in a line of people and animals, pack animals that were carrying our provisions, our food and stuff. And one of them went off the side of the of a cliff of a very long sheer embankment. And it, it was uh, mortally injured on the fall down. And unfortunately, one of our, our packers had to climb down there with his pistol and, and put it out of his misery. Oh. And it was, um, again, it was one of these reminders, like, this is not a holiday. This is a place where if you're not careful, um, you know, this, uh, you know, could be, you know, you could step in the wrong direction and that could be the end of it. So that, again, puts you in this sort of small and humbling place, but in a way that I felt was also really important for me at the time. I noticed you didn't mention fear or terror or dread, but more respect and humility. Yeah, I think that's that's how it characterized. I mean, you would get scared, obviously, if you saw like a bear and it was coming near you. But, um, you know, I remember definitely this one experience just coming out to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and just seeing this moose and it was huge. I mean, it was so much bigger than me. If it wanted to, you know, run through me, it would have been like nothing. Uh, and so seeing how big and powerful this thing was, um, I wasn't scared at all, actually. I just stood there and it just stood there and then it took off and it ran away. But when you're right in front of that, um, yeah, you. I guess there's an incredible amount of respect that, that I, I felt, you know, about how big, but also beautiful and regal and majestic this thing was. And, 
and it didn't want to harm me. And that was, I think, what was also there's a, there's a sort of clear understanding when I was there that made me feel like, oh, this knows that I'm here and that it's here, but it's not, we're not threatening one another. And so then we were able to go our separate ways. And so I felt that was, again, you know, one of the, a, a number of these types of transformative experiences I had out there um, that really helped me sort of put myself in perspective uh, in a way that, you know, you wouldn't have in the city, for instance. And now I can't help but ask, a, I posted an article recently about living closer to nature, using less power. And someone responded, one of the responses, not directly to me, but just to the article, was that he said something like, always remember, nature is always trying to kill you. As soon as you go out there, everything wants, you know, everything wants to kill you. And uh, I didn't respond to that post. I mean, it was just one of hundreds. But how does that, um, I mean, what, what's your response to that, that view? You know, I think that that is a really good example of what you might think of from a psychology standpoint as a, as a sort of schema or a narrative, a way that you think about the world. And if you think about it as a hostile place, you know, that is going to shape the way that you respond to everything that happens uh, to you and everything that you encounter. Uh, and you're likely going to be either far more aggressive or far more guarded in your day-to-day -day encounters. And you know, you can think of, I'm sure, any number of experiences a person might have that would give them that mindset, you know, that the world is dangerous or that it's, you know, some place that where everyone's constantly trying to harm you. But from a sort of mental health and emotional standpoint, that's got to be exhausting to feel that way. And that was not the, the feeling that I had when I was in nature. Um, I mean, there was, again, this the sense that it that it could be harmful if you were not respecting of that, but um, that wasn't, I never felt like it was aggressive or hostile or vice versa. I um, mean, certainly if it was, you know, it would be something far more impersonal, like just the cold, the elements, you know, that could certainly kill you if you're, you know, not prepared for it. And, and, it, and I don't think it's because there's a, you know, malicious intent there. I just think that that's, that's the way that it is. And so you have to kind of go out there with that mindset of, you know, this, place requires a certain amount of, of respect and preparation in order to be there. Um, and, you know, when you go out to these places that you want to um, leave it in a good state, you know, you want it to be there for somebody else or the next guy or next gal who might come out there to see it because it's just so wondrous, you know, in many ways, um, like going to Iceland or going to, you know, all these places that I've been able to go hiking and, and just you see something that's so jaw dropping, you know, and magnificent that you're like, wow, I just, I hope this remains here in, in a state where other people can come and enjoy it. And you know, obviously that includes things like not trashing the place or leaving, you know, remains of garbage and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think that that's something that also is, you know, we're not trying to destroy these natural places and they're not trying to, to harm us either. It's really a, um, a way that we can kind of think of ourselves in uh, harmonious kind of balance with nature. You mentioned a lot of emotions. I think one of the first ones is awe and humility, respect. Can you describe the emotional experience just focusing on that part? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think there is part of being in front of something so much larger than ourselves that, again, it's... Uh, 
that vastness that, you know, whether it be the sky, the ocean, you know, a mountain, um, it makes you feel small. You know, it, it, it reminds you of, you know, this ocean or this mountain has been here for so long and it's going to continue to be there. And I'm just this little sort of speck. And then again, to me, that often comes along with this sort of uh, reminder that all of the things that I'm worried about all the time are pretty small, insignificant little blips on the radar. And so that, you know, to, to connect back into these bigger picture um, entities, you know, and concepts, again, for me, it seems to sort of wipe the slate clean a little bit or help me clean, you know, clear the plate of, oh yeah, all this stuff that's mentally kind of draining me or my anxieties, um, they're not that important. This irony of, of like all this greatness and I'm a speck and yet it's not, I'm unimportant. And well, based on, on these experiences, these emotions, I invite you at your option, if you don't have to, to think of something you can do on a, in your day-to-day -day life now that would, to manifest those feelings, to bring about something like that. And some people choose to do something like a permanent change in their life, but most people, it's something that they do temporarily to try out. But to do something to manifest those things in your life now. And I want to clarify something I didn't say that a lot of people hear, which is I'm not saying, is there something you could do to help improve the environment? It's This is really personal. Not It, it may change the environment, but that's, that's secondary. And if you're up for it, with three conditions, three that have come from experience of something that you're not already doing, something that you do yourself, not like get a team of people to do it or kids or family to do it, but that you do yourself. I mean, it can be with others, but generally not depending on them because sometimes if they don't do it, then it, fall, it doesn't work. But something that you do yourself, you weren't already doing, and with some physical component. So not just watching a documentary or reading a book, but something where you interact with something. And so that there's some non-zero effect in the world that you've in some way left the world better than you found it. But that's not the point. Just it can't be neutral or, or polluting. Would you be game to try to think of something you could do? And if you're up for it, then I would invite you to come back and share how that experience went. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I've been thinking about this, you know, since before we we're talking, but it's something that has been sort of at the back of my mind. And, and specifically, I've been wanting to just hike more, which, uh, you know, be basically spend more time in nature. Uh, and it's not that difficult to access in, you know, the area where I'm at here in Baltimore. Usually you can drive 30 or 40 minutes and be in a nice, uh, you know, area, wooded area and, and spend some time out there. So I think that's, that's really what I would like to be doing more of. And, you know, now I might do it once or twice a year, but I'd certainly like to do it more like once or twice a month, you know, and that would be... I, I feel like it would be very helpful for me in terms of my mental health, for sure, um, just to feel plugged in that way. So would you be game to making a specific, making a specific of what you do and then scheduled a time to talk about what that experience was? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So if you were, I mean, I heard you say, and you're not obliged to say it, but to do this, but if you were to go hiking a couple times a month for a certain amount of time, is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I think that would be, you know, where I'd start would be starting some sort of regular hiking uh, 
you know, practice at least, you know, on that monthly basis. And then spending that time out there and maybe also doing some camping as well. Cause now I think about it, I haven't really done much of that since, you know, my days in the forest service or, you know, some time I spent out in graduate school, but it's been a while, obviously. I'm going to mention that this happens a fair amount. I said, people will say something they're like, you know, actually come to think of it. There's this other thing too. And it doesn't take long before it goes from, I'm thinking about X to like taking more steps. Uh, how long do you think you'd have to do it before, if I asked you, how did things go, that you'd have a meaningful response based on, you know, genuine experiences? Probably about five, six months, I would say, something like that. Would you be game to come back in five or six months and, and share how it went? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, as you said, when I'm starting to think about it, there are a few things that sort of are starting to percolate in my mind in terms of things that I could do or things that I've been wanting to do. And so, you know, I think hiking, camping, and also there's a few spiritual retreat centers near here where you kind of just go, you're not allowed to talk, and you're just there, and there's just, you know, you're in nature basically for some period of time, not, you know, often in meditation practice. So those are things that I would definitely um, be able to do in the interim and then come back and talk more about. All right. And just to make sure I understand, so you'll do a minimum of, of once a month for five or six months, and of the, of the choices – some may be this, some may be that. And so it's not necessarily that you'll do that or this. Because I I, the, the more specific it becomes, then I find that it's easier for people to do. So I, I'd like to make sure that... Yeah, I mean, I think the, the hiking is a sort of uh, starting point. So then, you know, should there be you know, adding on camping or something to that, that would just be sort of on top of, of doing the hiking, so... All right. And there's one thing I should ch I should double check on the the leave it better than you found it part is that's your personal judgment and would this satisfy that requirement of leaving things better than you found it? That's a good question. I'm not I'm not sure if that would necessarily just going out there and doing that sort of uh, hiking practice would leave it better than I found it. Maybe if I was picking up trash or something like that. So I have to think more about what you know how would that be brought into play. Let's play through that a second because it may help your process if we figure things out earlier. Or alternatively, if you don't figure that out now, it might be it might stop you from starting after we hang up. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, I think probably the main thing, and I do this a lot in my neighborhood, but you know, if I were able to go out hiking and then I guess to pick up trash, I don't know how much, it depends on I guess where I go hiking because some places will be more or less... Uh, you know, heavily trafficked, but uh, I think that could definitely be one way. I'm not sure if I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not kind of drawing a blank on other things I could do to leave it better than I found it. Um, but I have to, I guess, think more about that. Well, the requirement that I found works is just non-zero. So anything, so if you pick up one piece of trash the whole time, that would fit the criteria. If you then, if that leads you to more, I would love to hear what it leads to. Great. Well, I'll definitely. But I found that minimum is is a pretty effective minimum. It could activates the process of like the the listeners couldn't see the look on your face, but it was like I, I read. What can I do? Not like, uh, like with an expectation of finding something. Yeah, and I think the acting will lead you to that answer more than speculating. I, I agree. I think again, kind of just setting the wheels in motion is is a good place 
to start and having that sort of non-zero as a baseline and then kind of what, you know, how can you build on that from there? All right. So after we record, but before we hang up, I propose getting calendars out and sending the, the second conversation. Okay. Sounds like a good, good plan. And also, let me ask you this. I walked you through this process mm-hmm. of asking you these questions about nature and, and your emotions and uh, inviting you to act on it. Are you doing this for me? How do you mean? Are you going to hike, pick up litter because of me? No. I mean, those are things uh, that I've been wanting to do, you know, and that I, you know, I try to do regardless. But um, I think having a, the invitation to do it is helpful. I think it's a helpful motivator. All right. So that's the first, that's like day one of the Spodic method of walking people through of, of their experiencing the environment, the emotions and, and inviting them to act on it. And I suppose I can wait until after it's happened, but I'm curious, you're a researcher and, and you've, I presume you, you watch people when they do their, my picture of the, of the Johns Hopkins experience is there's a picture on the Johns Hopkins page of someone sitting with a blindfold on, on a couch, lying back, and two people who are, I guess, they're, is the word guide or uh, assistant? Yeah, there's usually a couple of uh, facilitators there throughout these dosing sessions. And I, I presume you've, you've observed a whole bunch of those. Mm-hmm. Maybe participated uh, as one of the guides yourself. I'm not sure. Yeah. How does this compare with that? I mean, it's obviously very, very different in many ways. There's, I think there's an overlapping aspect. And, I, you know, I think if uh, a lot of the work that we do with psilocybin, you know, is about taking an in, inward journey in a way. And so we kind of need to get the lay of the land with people, understand their, you know, formative life events and who they are and what it is that they're looking for that's important and meaningful to them. And then, you know, sort of setting them off into these experiences using psilocybin and kind of letting them go inside and, and kind of come back with whatever it is that they found and working with that. Um, so I think, yeah, in, in that regard, it does seem like a similar process. Yeah, I wonder if um, a couple things. One is the, I mean, I, the start of this is to, draw people's emotions, uh, their experiences in nature. And one of the big discoveries of this podcast and asking now hundreds of people what the environment means to them, what what their experiences is, everyone has an answer. You know, there's lots of areas in life where people don't necessarily have some peak experience. But with nature, it's really something that it's always there. And it's never like, oh, yeah, I had this experience in nature, but whatever. It's it's like really meaningful, and so it's there's always something there to motivate people with, and in a way that they they appreciate that they like. Sometimes there's a lot of defense. A lot of times, if I don't early on, if they start talking about what they read about in the papers and how global warming is going to destroy things, and and then they start freaking out about not their experience with nature, but what they read about, you know, that's a their experience is not. That's not an experience of nature. That's an experience of reading something and, and processing what they've read about, which is not really so much nature so much as scientific predictions or journalist stories. But their actual experiences is really profound and always there. I'm trying to think of um, when you, you talked about after their experiences, the integration. Is there an active component of 
suggesting that they act on something in the way that I invited you to act on what if your past experiences? Oftentimes, yes. And, you know, it depends, again, on the nature of the research study. If we're, you know, trying to treat something or if we're trying to help them quit smoking, then that's usually the intention that they come in with. And so we try to help them draw, you know, crystallize plans of how to do that successfully. But um, it's not unusual for people to go through this process for whatever it is that they came in for, but then walk out and say, you know, my experience did kind of give me a little push that I need to do this. It may be talk to a relative that they haven't talked to in a long time and maybe, you know, take up a hobby that they haven't done for some time, like reading or, you know, volunteering. Um, people walk out of their sessions sometimes and say, you know what, after that, I feel compelled to not eat meat anymore. And so I'm making this change in my diet. And we're not implanting those ideas into these people's heads at all. We're kind of just letting them go in, have their experience and come back and report to us what it is that they want to do. And so when they come back and they have something concrete like that, then, you know, we try to um, give them some structure or some support to, you know, meet their goals. But yeah, we're, we're not usually going in there with any sort of set intention outside of those specific therapeutic indications that they might come in with, like, I want to be less depressed and how do we help them with that? So in between implanting and letting it happen, you know, the word invite is when I settled on, I invite you at your option to think of something. And it's, I think it's worked pretty well. Generally, people come back and they, their first response is usually, yeah, I'd like to, but I can't think of what. And sometimes it'll take, you had something right away of hiking because it's been on your mind, it sounds like. And this gives you the, the invitation gave you the chance to act on something that was there. For a lot of people, again, there's um, a lot of, the most common response is, what they read in the New York Times that, you know, here's 10 things you can do for the environment. And they they leave from their intrinsic motivation to something that they read that they're supposed to do. And I often have to ask them, is that something that's, you know, maybe they said they had some experience along beaches and then they say, well, they're going to pick up litter. It could be connected, but often it's not. And so I sometimes dial them back and say, go forward from where you were as opposed to what someone told you to do. And it, Sometimes that flips it from extrinsic back to intrinsic again. But they really are the, the tendency, and I think this is part of our culture now, of um, feeling backed up against the wall. Like we don't have time. We have to do big things at scale immediately, fast, everything. And so if people feel like, well, if I'm doing something for myself, I'm not helping at all. But that's, anyway, what I'm getting at is that I think that active component of inviting people, in my experience, that helps a lot that it changes it to, it activates the person. But I'm looking forward to after you've had the experience, when you come back in, in a few months to share how it's gone, both your personal experience as a human and as a researcher and practitioner. Yeah, that would be great. I'm looking forward to that as well. Anything I didn't think to ask before we wrap up? I felt like we covered a lot of ground today. Um, can't think of anything off the top of my head right now. Well, then I look forward to hearing how things go in five or six months. And uh, Albert, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, 
There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.